Well, we have made it all the way to the end of Romans chapter 11, where last week we dug down into what I think are for the richest verses in all the Bible. And so the reason for staying there today is because I don't think we've gotten all the good that we can from those. So I want us to go there again. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. And I want to ask you to stand because as I told you last week, this is a call to worship. Romans 11, beginning in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it should be repaid him? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. A.W. Tozer, in his excellent little book, The Knowledge of the Holy, says, What comes into our minds about God is the most important thing about us. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man or woman is not what he or she at any given time may say or do. But what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. Now you think about that. The most important thing about us is what we think about God. I could not agree more. And so that's why I'm insisting, I'm insisting, if the most important thing about us is what we think about God, you better be careful where you gather your data of what to think about God. That's why we must draw our conclusions about God from God's word. And not just what we think he might be like, or what we'd like him to be like, or what we think he should be like. And so that's why passages like Romans eleven thirty three to 36 are so essential. Because they keep us from doing to God what we should never do to God. And that's try to make Him like us. And pull Him down to our level. And so to help with that, today what I want to do, and I hope you got your Bible because we're going to burn it up. We are going to use the Bible. This is a church that uses the Bible still. Hallelujah. So you're going to be glad you have one. We're going places in the Bible because here's what I wanted to do. I want to use Romans 11, 33, 36 now as a launching pad to take you to other great, big God theology passages. It's going to be like the old country buffet of God. 
Oh my goodness, and this is just a sample. We're just going to taste. I can't take you all the places, but I hope it makes you so, yes, satisfied and yet still hungry that you'll say, he's been saying this so long, I got to read the Bible. I got to read more of this. And I want you to notice this. We're going to be in the Old Testament a lot. And so if you're not in the habit of going there, you are missing out. In the time that remains, you might have been that person last week, if you were here, that walked out of still saying, what difference does it make what I think about God? How does my doctrine of God impact my everyday life? If that was you, instead of smacking you like I'd like to, instead I'm going to take you to God's word and try to convince you in a gentle, loving way, since that's so pastoral. And I want to show you how your doctrine of God, what you think about God, oh, it matters so much because it will either help you or hurt you with three of the biggest struggles that every human being faces. Ready? Number one, here's why it matters. Number one, your doctrine of God has to be big enough to motivate you to be killing pride. And cultivating humility for a lifetime. Now, I may have already lost some of you, so come back. You're like, whatever. Come back. Because you may not realize pride. Pride is one of the most deadly, deceptive, destructive sins that we have to do battle with. Because pride is one of those root sins below the surface that feeds so many other fruit sins and keeps them alive and well in your life. And you wonder why you're up here whacking fruit and can't get it done. This is a root sin. And so you've got to get after this. You've got to do whatever you can. Notice I'm not saying to kill pride. Let's kill it today and walk out hallelujah. I'm saying to be killing pride and cultivating humility. That's why the Bible says in more than one place, folks, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. How are you going to be doing that? How are you going to be and how am I going to be actively humbling myself, working at this, killing pride and cultivating humility? Well, let me make a connection for you that might surprise some of you. Your worship... And your pride. These two things are connected, folks, because these two things struggle to coexist in the same heart. Because one chokes and starves out the other. And the reason it works that way is because here's a good definition of worship. When I say worship, I hope you don't think, yeah, that's singing a couple songs on Sunday. We just worshiped. You're worshiping all the time as a human being. Worship is this. Worship is our response back to God. For who we're seeing. For all we're seeing of who he is, what he's done, what he's doing, and what he's promised yet to do. Worship is our response back to God for who he is, what he's done, what he's doing, and what he's promised yet to do.
And so get this, the study of God is not primarily to inform us and to educate us, though there's a place for that. The study of God, the great end of the study of God is to transform us and humble us before him. And when you start getting a steady dose of that in your life day after day of who I am in light of who he is and who I am in light of who he is and who I am in light of who he is. And let me help you here. You don't get that like you need it anywhere else but the Bible. Television doesn't make us think who I am in light of who he is. Everything, including your own flesh, rises up and puts us at the center and thinks great thoughts about us. You've got to go here to get a steady dose of who I am in light of who he is so that you can be killing pride and cultivating humility. Listen to me. The study of God, when you do it right with the Bible as your textbook was intended to shrink us, quiet us, and cause us to be still. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Go to Psalm chapter 46. We're going to look at a big God chapter. It's a big God chapter, but I want you to notice the effect it's supposed to have on us. There should always be an effect. It should never just be factoids, information. I just learned more about God. I'm smarter than everybody else. No, there's always a response. There's always a fruit. There's always an effect. And you're going to see the effect of this in in Psalm chapter 46. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth be removed, though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. Look at me. Silah. Don't skip that word and say, I don't know what that is. I'll I'll just, oh, it's an important word. It comes up three times there. Silah was the Hebrew word that meant pause. Think about that. Let it soak in. There is a river, verse 4, whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her. Just at the break of dawn, the nations raged. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of of Jacob is our refuge. Say it. Selah. Pause. Think about that. Let it soak in. Verse 8. Come behold the works of the Lord. Who has made desolations in the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow. He cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire. Be still. And know that I am God. I will be exalted 
among the nations. I would be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Say it. Selah. Now, I'm going to say something that may offend some of you, but sometimes you have to offend before you can help. So I'm on my way to helping. As the doctor says, you always know you want to buckle up when he says, you're going to feel a little pressure. That's another word for screaming pain. I don't know. I guess they teach them that in medical school. And there's going to be a little pressure. You're going to feel a little pressure right now. To some degree, when you can't be still, and I'm not talking about physically. I'm talking about that internal. You know what I'm saying? You have forgotten who God is. And it's worse than that. When you forget who God is, you start trying to be God. You say, oh, no, no, these are Christians at Grace Fellowship Church. Oh, you don't ever stop espousing an accurate theology, but you begin to operate as a functional atheist in that moment. Sometimes that week, sometimes that whole season that's so scary to you, you are functioning as an atheist. Big God theology that you see in Psalm 46 was meant to give a stillness, bring stillness into your life. Not the multiplication of words and arguments and frenzied activities that are focused on you and what you think needs to be done. You think about it. You might not have considered this. One of the best and biggest indicators of humility is stillness. You can relax because you believe there is a great big God that's in control. And some of you may never have considered this before. But the reason you can't relax, you can't rest, you can't be still... And it doesn't just affect you, it affects those closest to you. You drive yourself nuts and you want to take them down with you. The reason you try to control everything and everybody around you, everything and everybody around you is not a personality trait, my friend. It's a sin. And it's pride. And it's that you're not letting your theology of God intersect with real life and rest. It takes a humble person to do that. The New American Standard translates verse 10. Look at it again. Be still. And know that translates it, cease striving. Cease striving. Know that I'm God. Listen, it's only the humble who truly rest in God. Because they rest in a God that's bigger than all their categories and bigger than all the explanations. Abraham Heschel explains it this way. He says, forget your sense of awe. We're living in a culture, even Christian community, that has lost any sense of awe. The amount of information that we have at our fingertips has caused us to lose awe. We think we can Google and explain and discover and map and grid just about everything. But you will not Google God. You will not Google your way to the ends of God. And you don't want to because if you could, you would lose awe. Awe is essential. Forget your sense of awe. 
Let your conceit diminish your ability to revere. And the universe becomes a marketplace for you. The loss of awe is the great block to insight. A return to reverence is the first prerequisite for a revival of wisdom. Wisdom comes from awe rather than from shrewdness. The greatest insights happen to us in moments of awe. Folks, that's why God gives us so many jaw-dropping passages that leave you speechless. But some of of you don't know about them because most are in the Old Testament. Why are there so many jaw-dropping passages that don't lead to explanation? They actually add to your confusion when you think, what is going on there? Oh, my word. Because there's something more than information we need to be speechless and undone is when you begin to gain wisdom, practice humility, and rest, and trust God, and believe in God. Some of you are not able to rest, and you find it so hard to rest because you have not yet seen a God who's big enough. Your theology of God is way too small and you've not been undone. So here's what you need to do. Study the attributes of God, particularly the incommunicable ones. That's a big word that just simply means there's things about God that are like us and there's things about God that are not like us. And we tend to keep thinking he's just like us. There's a verse in in Psalm 50, verse 10, where God says, you thought that I was altogether like you. I'm not. Let me remind you again. I'm not. Study the incommunicable attributes of God. The ones that show us he's not like us. Not for the purpose of mapping out God and explaining God in your next small group or coffee with a friend. Not with a goal of information, but with a goal of transformation that leads to humility, that leads to rest. Some of you are are longing for that rest, but you haven't understood the path to it. In other words, you got to be feasting on some big God passages like Job 26. Go there with me. Job chapter 26. Job 26, beginning in verse 7. He stretches out the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on, say it, nothing. He binds up the water in his thick clouds, yet the clouds are not broken under it. He covers the face of his throne and spreads his cloud over it. He drew a circular horizon on the face of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. What are we talking about? We don't know. But God knows where the boundary of light and darkness is, whatever that is. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astonished at his reproof. He stirs up the sea with his power and by his understanding he breaks up the storm. By his spirit he adorns the heavens. Indeed, his hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Indeed, these are the mere, say it, edges of his ways and how small a whisper we hear of him but the thunder of his power 
who can understand? Go to Isaiah 40. Let me show you a great, big God theology chapter. Isaiah 40. And we'll walk through some of the highlights. Jump in at verse 12. Isaiah 40, verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span, and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance, Who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Or who has his counselors taught him? With whom did he take counsel? And who instructed him? Let me help you. These are rhetorical questions. The answer is nobody, 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 nobody. God and God alone. Verse 14, with whom did he take counsel? Who instructed him? Who taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are a drop. In a bucket. And are counted as the small. Dust. On the balance. Go to verse 22. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain. Spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Verse 25. To whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal? Says the Holy One. Now we're going up. He's going to take us up to the the galaxies. To the sky. To the stars. Lift up your eyes on high. And see who has created these things. Who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name. Every star. There's billions of them. By the greatness of his might. And the strength of his power. Not one is missing. Verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The creator The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. There is no searching of his understanding. Chris Lungard, in commenting on this chapter, says thoughts that reach up towards the excellency of God's majesty are beautiful and delicious to the soul. If you're here and you know the Lord... You know what he's talking about. I love to hear my God talk about like this. It's beautiful and delicious to the soul. But they come with unpleasant side effects. Even a hint of his greatness shows us up as grasshoppers, dust, and less than nothing in comparison. No one wants to go out of his way to feel small, weak, and defiled. But this strong medicine gives us hope against Sin In this humiliation, our sin withers. Our puny minds can't take him in. And that helps because it humbles us before him. Here's how this works. The more aware you become... And you will not become aware of it apart from reading the scriptures. The more aware you become of the infinite holiness, otherness, distance between you and God. Now here I want to say something. There are two ends of a theological spectrum you see in the scriptures. And we got a problem in our day. We've got Christians who are packed up on this end of the eminence of God. 
He's right here, right now. Christmas, what's the name? Emmanuel, God with us. Is that true? Is it biblical? Is it glorious? But let me help you here. It doesn't drop your jaw that he's right here with us. If you've lost sight of the fact, it's this God that's so different, so distant, so holy, so other, so grand. And yet he would come down to us. The more aware you become of the infinite holiness and distance between you and God, the more humility you will begin to experience and express. Arrogant, prideful people just don't know God very well. And do not think about God from the scriptures very often. And so let me say, along with reading this book, how much of it? Louder. All of it. Let me encourage you at some point in your life, read some books like A.W. Tozer's The Knowledge of the Holy. A.W. Pink's Attributes of God. J.I. Packer's Knowing God. John Piper's Pleasures of God. Desiring God. Not just for information, but as a means of transformation to give you ammunition to be killing your greatest enemy, pride, and cultivating humility so that you can rest. Number two, why does it matter what your doctrine of God is? Why does it matter what you think about God? Your doctrine of God has to be big enough to trump your unruly feelings and to fuel hope that's not based on sight or circumstances. And Ezekiel chapter 1 is a place that gets that done. You be turning there because some of you may have to use the index. Ezekiel chapter 1 is a place that gets that done. Let me put it in context for you while you find that chapter. Ezekiel is one of those books in the Old Testament where the prophet Ezekiel has been called to speak to the people of God When they're in exile, they're in Babylon. They've been ripped from their land. They've been torn from everything familiar. All that they knew and loved and trusted is gone. And God's called Ezekiel to speak to the people of God about God in a time like that. And to trust God in a time like that. That's hard. What's he going to say? Well, listen. God knew that before Ezekiel, before God gives Ezekiel anything to say, there's something he needs to see. Ezekiel needs to see again a great, big God who's in control despite circumstances in sight. And a great, big God that is not limited to geography and certain places and familiar circumstances. Because listen to me, chapter 1 Ezekiel begins with a mind-blowing vision of who God is because when everything, and some of you are there, when everything familiar to you is taken from you, your emotions and feelings will scream Along with your loss of familiar circumstances, you've also lost your God. 
You associated him with that church or that place or that time or that. You can't trust him now. Don't hope in him now. You're God forsaken. And so as Ezekiel gets a vision of God before he ever speaks to the people of God. I wish I could read the whole thing, but for sake of time, we can't. But read it. He uses the word like or likeness of 23 times. Because in this chapter one, he's not saying, here's what I saw. He's just saying, here's what it was like. I know it's not really that, but I don't have anything to compare it to. He, he failed. Words fail him to say, I don't know what I was seeing, but best I can do is it's like this. And it's sort of like this. And it's kind of like this, you know. Sounds a lot like maybe a teenager at this moment. Like, like, you know, because he's just like, I can't really tell you, but I'm going to try. 23 times. And he uses that phrase 14 times in the first verses that are just talking about what's going on around God. And then he picks up the pace and those, those phrases multiply when he begins to try to say, now God himself is coming into view. And it starts in verse 26. And there's why I want you to jump in with me. In verse 26. And above the firmament over the heads was the likeness of a throne in appearance like a sapphire stone. On the likeness of the throne was a likeness with the appearance of a man high above it. Also from the appearance of his waist and upward I saw as it were the color of amber with the appearance of fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his waist and downward I saw as it were the appearance of fire with brightness all around like the appearance of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day. So was the appearance of the brightness all around it. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. God knew that Ezekiel needed to see the glory of God so that he would have confidence to point the people of God back to God, to trust him, that he's in control and he's not limited to circumstances or geography or anything familiar to you. God was there before you arrived at that place. God is not limited. Maybe some of you are feeling just like the people of God in Ezekiel. That you're in Babylon. That's how you describe where you are in life now. Whether it's a marriage that's crumbling around you, Babylon. A divorce that's ripping your insides out, Babylon. A child that's rebelling, Babylon. Finances that have just upside down, a health that was robust, but now it's just plaguing you and limiting what you can do. Or perhaps it is literally, for whatever reason, you've had to move here and you've been plopped down in God-forsaken northern Kentucky, Cincinnati. And the danger is your feelings are screaming along with a loss of familiar circumstances and all that you knew. You've also lost your God. Listen to me. If you don't learn to talk to yourself more than you listen to yourself... You won't make it. You've got to learn to talk to yourself more than you listen to yourself. Those feelings are not trustworthy. 
I've been a pastor almost 30 years. I've been a Christian since I was seven. And I can tell you, I have not decided, oh, more and more my feelings have grown up and matured and they're really spiritual. My feelings have gotten so sanctified, I can trust them. Lie, lie, lie. I find that my feelings lag way behind the theology I say I believe. I have found more and more that I I need to distrust my feelings. I need to not listen to my feelings. In fact, the reason I go to God's word and I feed my soul and my mind big God truths is so that I'll have ammunition to use to argue with my feelings, to ignore my feelings, or to re-educate my feelings to get in line with what I know about God. Eugene Peterson says, we learn to live not by our feelings about God, but the facts of God. I refuse to believe my depressions. I choose to believe in God. My feelings are important for many things. They're essential and valuable. They keep me aware of much that is true and real, but they tell me next to nothing about God and my relation to God. Listen to this. My security comes from who God is, not from how I feel. Discipleship is a decision to live by what I know about God, not by what I feel about him. Oh, too often the church is guilty of thinking discipleship is one more book. We went through one more book. We spanked some more blanks and we learned some more stuff. If you're not learning how to talk back to your feelings, you are not becoming an effective disciple. It's one of the best things you could do. And to do it, you've got to have big God theology. You've got to have a theology of God that's outside of all your categories and beyond all your explanations so that you know he's not limited to circumstances. Who is he? Not how I feel. Let me ask you, where does your security come from? Does your security come from who God is or how you feel? It takes a big God theology to rise above your feelings and not allow your feelings to rule you or dictate to you. Here's what they try to do. They try to dictate to you what you can or cannot do next. Because it's like, if I don't feel it, I can't do it. Please get over that. You must get over that. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. I go to war against my feelings. I shout at my feelings. You find it in the scriptures. It's not just Brad Bigney making this up. Psalm 42. Don't go there for the sake of time. But there's a place I want you to go. And it's an example of where someone talks back to themselves. It's that place, Psalm 42, that says, Why so downcast, O my soul? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him. He says it three times. Why so downcast? He's crushed by his feelings. Everything inside him internally is saying, go down, go down, stay down. There's no hope. And he talks back. Psalm 103 is the same thing. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. And all that is within me. I got some wrong stuff within me right now. My feelings are roaring in the wrong direction. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, and forget not all his... You know what? I'm starting to forget his benefits. You better learn to talk to yourself using God's mighty word. 
You gotta have a big God theology to deal with your unruly feelings that want to dictate and rule you. Number three, why do you need a big God theology? Why does it matter what you think about God? Well, your doctrine of God has to be big enough to give you the power to say no. No to this world's puny value system. There's just a big sucking sound, shrink wrap, that just sucks us down into right here, right now, and more. Right here, right now, and more. Right here, right now. And Christians are not removed from this. And your flesh goes with it. How are you going to fight back? How are you going to punch some holes through that cellophane and that sucking sound? You better have a big God theology that's big enough so that you've seen something greater. You've seen something bigger. You've seen something eternal. And so you don't want to waste your life clutching and clawing and chasing and grabbing all the same stuff unbelievers are doing. But we got Christians doing it with a fish logo ball cap on. Stop it. Get off. Stay in the house you're in and pay it off. Drive used cars till they kill on the side of the road. We've all got cell phones now. Call for help and then get another one to start over. Don't just keep spending your money on all this stuff. There's something bigger. There's something greater. And it is so freeing. It's so freeing to live that way. But you won't unless you've got a big God theology. So let me show you what I'm talking about. So much more I could say right here and needs to be said. But go to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And here's what I want you to notice. Stop a minute trying to find it. Sorry, I should have said something else before you go. What you're going to see is a doxology of praise of big God theology that leads right into a warning and an exhortation. Don't get sucked into this world's value system. Those two things are connected, my friends. Now go, 1 Timothy 6. Big God theology, doxology of praise that leads right into an exhortation and a pleading and a warning. Oh, don't get sucked into this world's value system. 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 13. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until the Lord Jesus Christ's appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. Here we go. We're going doxology. We're going praise now. He will manifest in his own time. He was the blessed and only potentate. The King of kings, Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Great incommunicable attributes were just rattled off and they don't live in a vacuum. It's not like, well, that's nice. That should fire me up for Sunday singing. No, it shows up when you get a hold of that. It shows up on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday and keeps you from being stupid and chasing after all the wrong stuff. Because look what he says next. Verse 17, command those who are rich in this present age. Also, let me help you. He's talking to you. You may not have the income you wish, but you live in America, my friend. And so you are experiencing the top 4% in the world of goodness. 
air conditioning, cars, cell phones, cable TV, you're rich. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God. And you just gave us a little snapshot of that living God in those previous verses. Who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. When you've got big God theology, it causes you to let go of this stuff and you're ready to give, willing to lend, willing to invest. You see something bigger. Why does it matter what I think about God? Yes, have a big God theology for the glory of God. But secondly, I'm telling you, only big God theology will give you what you need to fight your own pride that wants to take you down in flames and to talk back to your feelings that want to dictate to you what you can and can't do next tied to sight and circumstances. And it's only what will give you what you need to dig in your heels and say no to this shrink-wrapped sucking sound of right here, right now, and more. Right here, right now, and more. Isaiah said, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And above it stood seraphim, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried out to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the sound of his voice. And the room filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. For I am undone. Let's pray together. Oh God, thank you. Thank you that the Bible is not just a textbook filled with instructions about this, that, and the other. We're grateful. Parenting, marriage, money, depression, anger, communication. But oh God, thank you that it's filled with big God passages that we, we struggle to come up with the right words. And even though words are there, we still don't understand all that it means. But that's okay because the effect of it is what we need. To fight our pride. To talk back to our feelings. And to punch through the shrink-wrapped sucking sound of this world's puny value system. Oh God, make us radical people that live humbly and radically different. Not because of information, but because of transformation. Because we know how to rest. And in that restfulness, we have courage to talk of you, to live for you, to use our money differently, to forgive people, to not get bitter. God, 
Use us for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.